Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to episode number 323 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is June 2nd, 2014. We've got a big show for you. We've got Daniel Jeremiah. You might know him on Twitter as at MoveTheSticks. He's a great uh, analyst for the NFL Network. He's a former NFL scout. We wanted to get him on a few weeks ago, but we'll get him on now just kind of talking about the USC players in the draft, free agency, and all that stuff, and you know, five juniors declaring. And not all of them getting drafted, so we're going to talk to him about all of that. we got Dan Weber coming up a little bit later on, and of course, Coach Harvey Hyde here in the first segment. We'll get to your questions. Podcast at uscfootball.com is the email, or call us at 206-888-6755, or you go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Leave a voicemail right there. Let's bring in the coach, Coach Harvey Hyde. How you doing, sir? Brian, I'm doing great, buddy. We're into the summer months now. Football's getting closer. Everybody's vacationing. It's starting to get hotter. How can it be any better? It is great. We love to see get a little summer football going. We'll see some fall camp in a couple months. So a lot of stuff going on. Want to thank our sponsor before we jump into everything. Southern California Tickets, SCTickets.com is a website or call them at 1 800 888 7287. I don't know if you heard, but the Los Angeles Kings now are in the Stanley Cup final. So if you want tickets for that, Dodgers, Angels, anything else, you can check them out, sctickets.com. We'll uh, hook you up. And uh, Coach, yeah, we got the first summer workout came in last week. I know you think that the, the players do a little too much of this stuff. Um, they seem pretty excited. I don't know. They're out there. Maybe you get burned out by by middle of July waiting for fall camp to start. But the players were out there doing their players-only practices. And it was actually, Coach, much more well-attended than I've seen other ones in the past, in the, at least the past couple of years. Well, you know, kids uh, like to have fun playing football. And I don't know in the past how much fun they were having. And they seem to be having a lot more fun as far as what I saw in the spring. They get along well. They're teaching each other. They want to win. They want to be successful. And they're looking forward to the season. And you've got to make sure that you have that type of atmosphere. You can't force it on them. But kids start to see if someone else is there, I better be there. And what happens by having big numbers, then other kids come out because they know that they'll be behind. And services like yours and others will be saying, this guy didn't show and this guy didn't show. And all of a sudden, people start to think that the kid has a bad attitude or something's wrong or he's going to be ineligible or whatever or he's transferring. So when you start to have these type of activities, as you take role out there, uh, the players take role out there. And if sometimes players have legit excuses, they're with their family on vacation, that's great. I just think that, as I said before, I think you need a break from football, need a break from your job, need a break from a lot of activities you do, and then you look forward more to coming back. And really now with the football seasons, as long as they are, starting practice August the 4th, and if you went to the national championship game, that's January the 6th or 5th, I believe, that's a long period of time. Then, of course, you have a brief break before you get into spring training. But before spring training, you you have your workouts before you get to spring practice. (laughs) So, you know what I mean. It's a long period of time in your joints and your legs and your muscles. 
they need to rehab. And uh, on the my one of my shows the other night, I had this uh, well-respected trainer on. He says the best way to rehab is just get away from it. Let your muscles rest for a while. And uh, you won't see as many of these Tommy Johns and ACLs and all these different things happening because you have a chance for everything to go back in place. So, you know, I just think that you have to want to have a football in your hand. You have to want to block a, a bag. You want to start to learn again. And I just always feel that kids, they're just kids, need to be kids and away from football for a period of time. But as you mentioned, a good group out there, they're enthusiastic. You just don't want to lose that enthusiasm towards the end of the season. And it happens. And so we'll see. I, mean, I it was. I think it's encouraging to kind of watch these guys, but we'll see. You, you don't want to get burnt out and uh, and find what's going on. We aren't, we're not allowed to interview them, Coach, so they at least get a little break from that, but we can kind of watch them work out. So we'll we'll keep you guys updated on what we see out there. And I wanted to, we got some questions for you, Coach. Uh, Brandon. Let, let me ask, let me ask oh. the first question to you. Okay. Is that an NCAA rule or is that a USC rule? It's a USC rule. It's a very arbitrary USC rule. Uh, they just decided. Well, what are they going to do if you do it? Uh, for, okay, so basically what during the summer workouts, we were allowed to interview players and stuff. And I, I think it's worked out well. The players like it. I mean, they get a lot of practice. Um, so there, the rule came down that we are not allowed to interview them in June, but we can interview them in July to give them a break or whatever. So, uh, I, I mean, whatever. It's, it's, it just seems kind of random. It's not, I mean, a lot of schools don't even have these workouts open. But I do, Coach, think if people start interviewing players in June, they'll close the workouts altogether. That's that's my feeling of what would happen. So we'll go down there, shoot photos and videos, but we are not allowed to interview the players until July. Well, I just thought I'd ask the question before someone else called in because I just wondered when you mentioned that the last week on an interview you and Dan were doing, you said you couldn't talk to the players. Yeah. And I was sort of it was sort of strange to me on if I had never read about anything like this, and I just wondered if it was an NCAA rule or a USC rule. Okay, USC don't interview the players. Brand new rule from USC. They love to come up with new ones sometimes, but uh, well, that's okay. <laughs> well, okay. So Brandon had a question. He said, "I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Listen every week." Well, thank you, Brandon. Uh, also, I met you on the Coliseum Field after the Stanford game last year. I had my face painted like the Joker from The Dark Knight. Uh, very nice. I do remember that. I have a question about Adoree Jackson. I think he's a great cornerback, but I feel he's extremely dynamic on the offensive side of the ball. I can see him playing a similar role as Jadon Mickens did at Washington under Sarkeesian. Imagine a healthy George Farmer with Nelson Aguilar, Adoree Jackson on the field at the same time. Wow. That's from Brandon. Well, yeah, yeah you know, he's, he's a great athlete, but uh, you've heard me say this every week. You've got to have all your players on the field. And if he's, uh, if he's the best corner or can start at a corner, then he should be on defense. If he's the best uh, slot back or receiver, along with Nelson Aguilar, or, you know, there's a lot of receivers over there, uh, then maybe he should be on, re- on the receiver side and one of those receivers to go to the defensive side. Uh, but uh, myself, I, I agree, he's a tremendous athlete. He's going to be a tremendous athlete. Uh, you've got to put him where he can help the football team, you know. A lot of this is what I want to do. Well, you know, it's great to what I want to do, but you've got to do some things that say what's best for the team and let's get some team involved in this. And I think he'd rather be playing than watching or alternating. So uh, I think it's a great receiver and it's a great corner. So I think, uh, as I've said, every single week, as you evaluate progress in your depth charts, how do you get your players on the field? How do you put yourself in the best position to win? Well, that's by getting your players on the field, and that's what I will 
maintain and say that all along. Uh, okay. Well, we'll see what uh, what ends up happening with that. He was not one of those players at the workout. We didn't see uh, Juju Smith or uh, Adore Jackson, but we did. You know, we'll we'll see him certainly later on in the summer. And he's a dynamic player. It'll be fun to watch uh, where he ends up. Um, let's go to Gene. He said, "This is Gene from Orange County. I've been a football fan for over 50 years. Wow, nice, Gene. Uh, there's a question I have often wondered, and maybe Coach Hyde could answer it. With Coach Sarkeesian taking over now." We hope he'll be a great coach. I would like to know the coach's opinion on what makes some of the few coaches great, like Pete Carroll, Nick Saban, Bear Bryant, guys like that. What exactly do they do different from the good coaches? All the coaches run the same plays. They get the best coaching staffs they can. They all try to get the best recruits, but some coaches are able to create dynasties where others just become good coaches. I'm sure there's something different there about their systems. Hopefully Coach Hyde can give me some answers. Let's hope Steve Sarkeesian will turn out to be one of those great coaches. Love the show, Gene. Well, thank you for checking in with us. You know, first of all, we haven't ever talked about this before, but let me tell you, there's a lot of great coaches that never get the opportunity to coach on the college level or be a head football coach. There's a lot of great coaches in high school and other levels of football that never have that opportunity, but there's a method to the madness. Uh, first of all, it's being in the right place at the right time, getting the opportunity to coach at the right level. There's a lot of great coaches uh, that are that are coaching in pretend programs, uh, programs where there's no financial money for them to, success, to be successful, play have played body bag games to uh, bring in the money to keep the football program afloat and the athletic department afloat, and they proved to be non-successful and uh, become an assistant coach again. To be a very successful coach, too, you have to be in a program that cares about football, not just the athletic director, but all the way to the top, where it's important to the regents, it's important to the president, it's important to the faculty and the alumni. Everyone wants to support the football program, and that way it's a known fact that football is important. I think that's what you have to have. Now, also what makes a great coach, you get the opportunity to coach at a major college good level, is a coach that's successful at one of those universities that don't have everything, that goes in and, and tries to uh, compete, does compete, wins its conference championship, maybe doesn't win all its body bag games, but is competitive and takes a player, not every player, but picks up a player or two that people say, how did they get him? And the first thing they think when you recruit a player away from SC or UCLA, they're cheating. They're not cheating. They don't even have enough money to pay their coaches. So, But that's the first thought, that if somebody gets a player that SC goes after, Stanford goes after, Texas go after, they're cheating. Take the Jerry Tarkanian uh, situation. Because he was able to play UCLA and play SC and play Arizona at the time and Temple, all these great programs, the first thing they did is go after him, the NCAA because he was winning at Long Beach State, he was winning at UNLV, where how can UNLV, a little school like that, compete against these other great schools and win a national championship? Now, I'm not comparing that with all coaches. I'm just using that as an example. So I think there's a lot of great coaches that don't get the opportunity to be a head football coach, but they're never given the opportunity to be there. You take Steve Sarkeesian along, along with other coaches, how could he be in a better situation? I mean, played at BYU, played at El Camino or uh, under John Featherstone, coached at El Camino, and then the great Norm Chow brought him over to USC. He was tutored by Norm Chow, had the opportunity to be the offensive coordinator at USC, was offered the Oakland Raider job. Why was he 
offered that job because he was USC. And he, and he was known with Pete Carroll, and he was known with, by Norm Chow and the tutoring that went on there. So he had an opportunity. Now, I'm not telling you Steve Sarkeesian's not a great coach. I'm saying he's a great coach in a great position to be able to do these things. Then he gets the Washington job. Uh, he's there. He's in a Pac-12 uh, conference. Uh, he's been at USC. Pat Hayden likes him, goes after him, hires him, and at the time he was the best fit for the position at USC, comes down with a lot of enthusiasm, brings a young staff down with him and rallies around all the controversy that's at SC and has quieted, quieted the media, quieted everything, and things look as though they completed a great recruiting year, and now he's going into his first season. Now, is he a great coach? I think he can be a great coach. I don't think yet Steve Sarkeesian has proven what level of great coach he is. He's right now not going to go into any Hall of Fames, but he has the potential at USC to go in some Hall of Fames. And I like his enthusiasm. Everywhere I go, people like him. I was in Vegas this past weekend at the Southern Nevada Sports Hall of Fame talking with the uh, Las Vegas Bowl Committee. They love Steve Sarkeesian. When he comes into town, he talks to people. He doesn't walk away from people. He'll autograph footballs. He's a person people. A lot of people don't have those skills. He considers himself a great recruiter, which you have to have the confidence that you can go into any home, talk with anybody, and turn kids around if they've committed somewhere else. Well, at USC, you can do that. You can go into a home that a kid is committed to a school and say, hey, wait a minute, we're a little late, but remember, we're USC, and we have the choices on who we really want first, and we want you, and, and go after them, and turn a kid. Now, if you're at Long Beach State, it's pretty tough to turn a kid. If you're at New Mexico State, it's pretty tough to turn a kid. So you've got to remember where you are and what your assets are and what your tradition is and who you are as far as establishing yourself. Can he be a great coach? Can he be one of the great coaches of USC football history? We're going to see. But he's in a position where now USC has more funds than ever before as far as from all the television revenues. And he's in a perfect setting where Pat Hayden has given him anything he wants, money's not a problem, to win. Nice salary, nice budget, nice facilities. You got it all going on for you. So now what you do is you take advantage of that. Remember, you don't pay someone two and a half million dollars a year or whatever he makes to fail. So he knows the exact situation he's in. You can't be in a better. There's only maybe ten of these type of situations in the country: Ohio State, Urban Meyer, which is successful; Nick Saban, which is successful; USC, Jim Morris doing a great job at UCLA because he's demanded. He's demanded certain things from the athletic director to make it a football school. It's not a basketball school. It's an athletic department. He has demanded that his coaches get paid. He's demanded that he gets a new facility. He's demanded new new things that he needs for his program to be successful because Jim Moore has the type of financing backing and the type of status that he can say, you don't want to win here. I'm out of here. So... This is the type of, of way you judge a coach, is what he has, where he is, how bad the university wants it, and then you watch to see if he can take advantage of all these things and establish himself, and that works from the top down, including the Office of Admissions, to the academic support group, to every phase of the university. I hope I answered that gentleman's question. I think his name was Gene. But I just couldn't answer it by just one sentence. 
No, I, well, Coach, when's the last time you answered a question with one sentence anyway? Is, is now, never. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, yeah, no, I think that, that definitely makes sense. Um, there's a lot There's a lot of aspects that go into it. But, like, you know, we you hear people talking about, like, Dan Marino never won a Super Bowl. There's a lot of situational things that happen, too. You could be a really great coach, and it's just the situation you're in isn't as fortunate. And I think there's other coaches that – I mean, was Barry Switzer the greatest coach ever? Maybe not, but he won a national championship, you know? So I, I think you see a lot of examples on both sides well, of that. Well, well, but Barry Switzer's philosophy was different. Barry Switzer was a great recruiter to a great university and surrounded himself around great coaches. He was the figurehead of the program. So kids knew who he was. He wasn't afraid to recruit. He went out and recruited. I recruited against Barry Switzer. He was a good friend of mine. He was the figurehead. He was the figurehead of the Dallas Cowboys. He didn't coach the Dallas Cowboys. He had Ernie Zampezi and everybody else around him. <laughs> but he knew how to keep the team together and allow his assistant coaches to get it done. And this is what he did at Oklahoma. He didn't even wear a headset, if you remember. He didn't even know what play was being called. All he knew that he kept the team together. But I guess you could say that's a great coach if he knows just to, to you know, he's not mismanaging or overmanaging. He's just allowing the people, getting good people, and allowing them to do their thing. Exactly. And he said, if I go out and get the best players in America, you better coach them. Yeah, that well, makes sense. All right, uh, let's see. We got one other question for you, Coach. Um, Frank in Sacramento, uh, he said, Ryan, Ryan, the word is Stanford is charging $95 a ticket for the USC game, 20 to $30 higher than every other game. What do you think about this? What do I think? I think it's smart. I think every school is going to that now. I think it's getting a little bit ridiculous as far as what college athletics are going to. I, I've said this all along, and you can say, you'll you'll say, oh, I, I heard this from somebody five or six years from now. And Well, I'm going to tell you, I said this 20 years ago. Eventually, college football is going to be like the NFL package, especially the bowl games. All the bowl games, the new college football playoffs, that's going to be a separate package you're going to have to buy. Because they're they're following where the dollars are. They don't care. I mean, not that they don't care. It's just that as long as people will continue to watch it and pay those prices, they're going to charge. And they're making money to support their other programs and build facilities. It's an arms race yep. between universities and so on. Yeah, they'll pay it and they'll sell them all out. And if Stanford people don't buy them, USC people will buy them. So they know that will happen. And I've suggested that to you and LV when I talk to their athletic director, and so on. And when certain teams play there, you've got to jack the prices. I think UCLA goes to uh, uh, UNLV next year or, or the following year. Well, when they come to town, jack those tickets up because people want to watch these teams play. When Notre Dame comes to the Coliseum, SC jacks those tickets up. Well, you know, it's like taking the show on the road. <laughs> There's certain teams that you can raise your ticket prices and you'll sell the tickets. Nice. Well, we'll see uh, as the arms race continues out here in the West, and uh, we'll be talking a lot more college football as it gets closer and closer to fall, which everyone loves and everyone wants to hear about it. But we appreciate you coming on, Coach. I know we're going to do a little shorter segment because we got Daniel Jeremiah coming up. We want to talk to him about the uh, NFL draft. But thanks again for uh, coming on the show. Hey, Ryan, thank you very much. And for all of you out there that send these questions in or call in, we appreciate it very much because without you – or in any podcast. So buckle up out there, everyone, and have a great week. All right. Thank you, Coach, and everyone else. Hey, back in a minute, we're going to talk to Daniel Jeremiah at 
Move the Sticks about the USC players in the NFL draft. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. All right, we're back on the Peristyle Podcast. Got a very special guest this week. I've been trying to get him on for a little while. He's a really busy man. Uh, Daniel Jeremiah, uh, he's an NFL network analyst. He's a former scout, I think, with the Ravens, Browns, and Eagles. You can check out his work on the NFL Network, NFL.com, and I'm sure you've seen it on TV during the draft. And he's got probably the greatest Twitter handle Ever at at move the sticks, so it's a pretty good one for a guy that covers football. Daniel Jeremiah joining us. What's up, Daniel? How you doing? I'm doing good, Ron. How you doing, man? It was great, and uh, thanks again for uh, for coming on the show. We were talking a little before you came on, and uh, I didn't. I don't think I even realized this, but you're actually uh, you're on the Peristyle. You're on USCFootball.com checking stuff out. Dude, I've been on there. I've been on there for for years. Uh, as a scout, I you know I, I would actually expense it with the teams I worked for because I felt like I was getting information out of there that I would, you know, I could use in my scouting reports and background on guys. I, I always the uh, off season pictures when you guys go to the workouts, kind of see, oh man, you know, I'm pleased to see. So I got a lot of valuable information out of, off the peristyle. And then also the entertainment factor is, is pretty large as well. <laughs> and it's, it can be a little entertaining at times. Uh, it kind of gets crazy during the off season, but that's funny. Like for, as a scout, would you use like the the team, you know sites on the rivals network? I mean, is that something that was a resource for you guys that that people typically use? Absolutely, absolutely. I know I did. I know several of my friends in, in, in scouting use it as well because you can get a lot of information on there. Um, going through the recruiting process, you get information when they're kind of getting to a school, what expectations are, what they did in high school, uh, you know, and then and then just being able to kind of track a player's development, you know, as they go through the program and. You know, a lot of times schools are very tight-lipped about, you know, hey, this player is not starting this week, and uh, and you're trying to dig information. Sometimes that can be hard, and you, you're a member of a, of a site like yours. You guys tend to have the inside scoop on a lot of that stuff. You guys are so close to the program. So, uh, yeah, it can help out. It's very, very valuable. There's a lot of scouts. You'd be shocked if you knew the number of scouts that are uh, – that are perusing the, the message boards, uscfootball.com. That's hilarious. All right. Well, that's good stuff. Another thing is, like, the, the like, I just touched on it briefly, the entertainment uh, factor. I mean, the night, like, right before recruiting and all the different guys are on there uh, with their recruiting scoops and everything. And, I, I mean, I get I get way into it. It's like borderline <laughs> obsession. And I'm like, I don't know, this guy, I think this guy's pretty dialed in. You know, I figured that John Martinez's dad was on there. Polly Dad, too, I want to say is his. You got Chris Hawkins, young corner. His dad's on there. What is he, Big Hawk 29 or something? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm all, I'm all over it, man. <laughs> that is, that's that's hilarious. Is it, now, you're a Southern California guy. You live here in Southern California. Did you just yeah. kind of on that site, on, on USCFootball.com, because you lived around here and you kind of follow the team? Yeah, you know, it's interesting is I, you know, I grew up in San Diego, and so – like I grew up, I was, you know, grew up playing sports with 
with, with Mike Van Raphorst, who ended up going up there to USC, uh, Pat Baker, who, who'd gone up there, were kind of guys I grew up with. Um, so, but I followed USC forever, and, and I keep up with what's going on over at UCLA as well. So those, those programs were, you know, when you're a scout, you, you never want to miss on a player, but you surely don't want to miss a player in your own backyard. Uh, so I've always, you know, even though I'm, 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 I'm working in the media now, I've always kind of paid extra attention to kind of what's going on at SC and UCLA and, and even throw San Diego State in there. Because the last thing you want to do is get up in front of your general manager and head coach and, and go all in on a player and you realize you don't even have all the facts about them or you're not right. So I uh, always spend a little extra time on those three programs. Oh, okay, makes sense. And uh, if, if people don't know, you definitely need to check out uh, the NFL Network. I followed it for the draft. It was great. Um, I love. I, I guess I got first introduced back in like 2008. I started watching it more. They actually had a college football show. I don't know if you knew this, Daniel, that I was the USC analyst on the show, so they would kind of go on and I, I, I would go in there and talk. But I, that's where I first met like Mike Mayock and uh, Charles Davis and a bunch of those guys who you work with. I know you work with Charles closely and those guys now, but Mike was the best. Mike's come on the podcast before. I think he might be too big time for us now, but uh, <laughs> he used to come out to the USC Pro Days. But it was really cool to get to meet these guys because, you know, you watch ESPN and stuff all the time, but I really feel the information on the NFL Network's better. And just having you on that team, I think it's it's really enhanced things there. So hopefully you're having a good time with it, but I really enjoy it. Well, it's been awesome, man. You know, I, I was uh... – I was scouting Philadelphia and, uh, and this media opportunity came along. And so I made the decision, turned on a promotion and, and, and went ahead and took the media opportunity just because I have four kids and there's so much travel involved with scouting. Um, I thought this would be a better life uh, for my family. I didn't know if I would enjoy it quite as much as I did scouting because I really had a blast scouting. But this, uh, it's actually been even more fun. It's been, it's a, it's a great group of people at NFL Network and you get to kind of cover all the teams and, uh, it's a cool job whenever you can look at a, at a schedule, at the college schedule when it's released, and you go cherry pick and go, okay, I think I'm going to go to this one, this one, this one, and this one, and uh, somehow you get somebody to pay for it. Nice. All right. Uh, well, this uh, since you're here in Southern California, I think you know a lot about uh, what's going on with some of the USC players and where they went. Um, I guess some of the big, the, maybe that we'll start off with, if, if you look what happened kind of during the Lane Kiffin era, USC had, I think it was nine players drafted back in 2011, but really just 10 combined over the last three drafts. So has there been a fall-off in general from the USC players, you think, in the draft lately? Well, I mean, yeah, compared to what it was. I mean, I I can remember going there to the practice field the year where they had, you know, well, there was about two or three years in a row under Pete. But, I mean, I especially remember – uh, going there the linebacker year, when you would walk out on the field and you look and say, okay, there's Ray, there's Clay Matthews, there's Cushing, even, you know, Mayava, and then you had all the defensive linemen with Seth Ellis and you had Lawrence Jackson. It, it looked like an NFL team when you went out there. And there was just, you ended up, you would always, one of my favorite things to do when you go out there to practice at SC when you're scouting is grab a coach, grab somebody, and you start asking about these guys, these underclassmen that aren't, they're not really, maybe spot playing, playing a little bit. Uh, but the backups, you know, you're like, who the heck is this guy? What, you know, and they, they, they tell you a little bit about him because they look like studs. They couldn't even get on the field. And now, you know, with especially uh, with the NCAA penalties, when you go and look there, yeah, they're, you know, you've got Leonard Williams, you've got big time guys out there. But the backups, the, the twos and threes, are very easy to spot. You go, okay, wow, that's a big difference between that guy and that guy. So I think that overall depth, you know, has been an issue, and I think when you're not getting to practice good on good, you know, with, with, you know, stud going up against stud, that makes everybody better. I just think that that whole process has kind of led to what we've seen a little bit of drop off over the last few years. 
You know, you might remember just a kind of a side thing. You mentioned those guys that were backups. Kyle Prater was a guy that always looked like I don't know if you remember him. He was a five-star receiver from Illinois. That oh yeah, oh huge, yeah, huge dude. And they end up transfer. I think it's at Northwestern or whatever now. But he was a guy that looked at like that guy has to be good. And I don't know if a scout you looked at him and say, now he's soft or he's this or that. But he just to me always looked like why is that guy like amazing? He sh- it seemed like he should be. Well, he had great. He had great hands. He was enormous. Huge catching radius. Was really stiff. That was the one thing that I was, you know, kind of worried about when you just went out there on the practice field and watched him move around. But man, he was enormous. Uh, and and with some of the success we've seen at some of these bigger wideouts at the NFL level, you would have thought uh, he had a chance. But then he kind of, what he ended up at Northwestern, right? Is that I where he ended so. up going? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And then just kind of and just kind of trailed off. But I mean, yeah, they had. Uh, I remember those teams where you had like. Uh, was it Marquise Ambles, who was another highly recruited guy yeah. who was, you know, couldn't get on the field. One of the guys I used to like up there that never played and just kind of drifted away was uh, he was number 17. He was a little receiver. It was Patterson. Right? Oh, yeah, was Trayvon Patterson. Yeah. Trayvon Patterson. Yeah. You know, and he was one of those guys you go out to practice and you watch him move around like, that guy's got some explosiveness. Kind of interesting guy. But I mean, he couldn't get on the field. He was in the, he was bounced around with some NFL teams. I think he actually came out for like, you know, sometimes players come back for a second or third pro day. I think he did that uh, once or okay. twice. But yeah, well, then you had uh, Sultan McCullough, who I think he has a record for pro day appearances. <laughs> he did. He was fast, though. He definitely had some speed. Dude, I, I, you don't even know how much money I made on him because <laughs> when you go to pro days, one of the things that scouts like to do is we play just the over under game, and uh, and so you just you, you post a time, and the guy next to you has to say over under, and we would you know back in the day we used to do it with like Starbucks drinks or you know five bucks whatever. Uh, but every year he would be like, "Oh, this guy hasn't played in years," and I would always, I would always just let them set the line. They go four, five, two, and I just say, "Under no shots, it's easy money." <laughs> he blows this thing out every year. <laughs> That's great. Are you one of the guys that does that? You would you hand time it yourself, or did you trust electronic times? How did you do that? Because forty times are just like the weirdest thing. There, it's all over the map. But it seems like every scout has well, their own method. Yeah, I always always hand time. So. To me, and and what people a lot of times when you're you see the combine times, and uh, people go, okay, well, what was the electronic? Got to get the electronic. Most teams that I've been around, um, we rely on the hand times. You would say, you know, the electronic is more accurate. Well, yes, but we don't get to take those electronic machines with us when we go to pro days. So if a receiver doesn't uh, run at the combine, he runs at his pro days. Now we're comparing apples to oranges with an electronic time from a guy at the combine versus a hand time at a pro day. So we always used our hand times. Now, we knew there was some room for error there, but when you have, you know, the guy runs twice, usually you get a pretty good feel for it. So that's the way we always did it. Yeah, I mean, if you have a ruler that's a little bit off but use the same ruler to measure everybody, then it seems yeah. like, you know, that would Look make sense. You. That's, that's the more intelligent way to say what Is I that a good analogy? I don't know. I just came up with that. But, I just, uh, but yeah. I'm, that, just, that, I'm stealing it. I'm stealing it now. <laughs> you go ahead. You can steal whatever you want. Uh, okay, so the other – Big news coming out of the you know, only U.S. only three players drafted from USC, but five players, uh, underclassmen declared for the draft. Only two of them, Marquise Lee and Marcus Martin, end up getting drafted. Dion Bailey, George Uko, and Xavier Grimble end up signing as free agents with the Eagles, Saints, and Giants, respectively. Uh, but was mm-hmm. that kind of a surprise for you? And is that like a a trend? There was a bunch of juniors that came out that didn't get drafted. I, I don't know if people see the success of a guy. Uh, uh, why, why am I blanking on his name? The little cornerback that went to Buffalo, Roby, Roby, yeah, Raquel Roby. Yeah. Um, you know, he he you know, was he a late drafter or didn't get drafted and ended up signing and yeah, he and was starting. undrafted, yeah. yeah, and starting. But is that something that's you know concerning these guys or what do you think about how all that all went down? Well, I mean, the thought 
you know, going around was that agents were really getting the kids and telling them, look, with the change in the CBA, it's important that you get to your second contract as soon as possible. So don't get hung up on being a first or second round pick. It's all about getting to that next contract. If you come out a year early and you're a fifth round pick, don't worry about it because uh, you'll get paid on that second contract a year earlier. Uh, so that was kind of the big selling point. Now, unfortunately, we had too many underclassmen come out. I think we had close to 100. Um, and, and we saw a record number of guys go undrafted. And you can look at guys like Mikel Roby that have been successful. And for every Mikel Roby, you can point out five other guys uh, that made a mistake and could have really benefited from an year in school. I think that's probably the case with these guys at SC. Now, the, the interesting thing is, they're, they all have ability, and I wouldn't be shocked if they did if they did make anything. Xavier Grimble, to me, when I watched him the year before when he was healthy, I want to say there's a play against Boston College where he runs like a curl, catches a curl, breaks a couple tackles, and runs away from some people uh, and scores. You kind of got a chance to see what he can do. He has a big frame. Um, he's got he's got upside as a blocker. So he's an in, intriguing guy. I was a little bit surprised. Um, with his situation. So I think he's got a real chance. Then you talk about Deion Bailey and George Uko, kind of both guys tweeners, you know, uh, good football players, really good college football players. They have a chance at the next level. Um, but you're just kind of like the Uko is, is kind of uh, got a defensive end body, but he's, he's an inside guy. And then you've got Deion Bailey, who has played linebacker, has played safety. I think he's got a chance. It's going to be a sub player coming to play in nickel. I think he'd be a great kind of a, a dime linebacker uh, to play in sub. So that, to me, is where his, his future is. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you like to see those guys come back in next year of college and, and maybe help themselves a little bit. You know, Gribble's an interesting guy. You mentioned him. USC's actually had some fairly successful um, guys recently go on and, and play in the NFL. I mean, Jordan uh, Cameron didn't even yep. play at USC, and he's, like, catching touchdowns all over the place. But just Dude, I that- got to tell you, Ryan, I got to tell you what – my Jordan Hammer story real quick. Oh yeah, no. because I was scouting. Um, I believe it was in Philadelphia at the time. And you go into his when you're in this in the room, you're trying. You, you know, you got to make your case and tell the player. Well, I really liked him. So I'm stating my case and I'm telling him my big argument. You know, because you know he didn't play as much and the production wasn't all that great. Was you have to see the onside kick recovery that this guy has. I think it was against Arizona State. Um, where you see him just see him jump just to see it's just raw athleticism. And literally you're in the room going like, dude, you're hard pressed. If you're really, your big selling point is an onside kick recovery. I'm like, I'm telling you, this guy's athletic as heck. You got to see this play. Uh, but you know, look, dude, the, the Browns got, got one because he was so athletic and just never got a chance to really, uh, to show it at SC. And it's funny. We, we watch all these summer workouts. We film them and we're, we're down there a lot. And he was one of those guys that, Whoever the quarterback was could just throw it up. It was like a rebound. He would go up and grab it. And then we report on, you know, we would talk about it on the peristyle or, or you were like, hey, Jordan, this guy looks great. He should catch a shitload of touchdowns. I can say that. It's my podcast. A whole bunch of touchdowns. <laughs> it's a whole bunch of touchdowns. And uh, and then he would never play and he would never get. And then people are looking at us like we're crazy. I'm like, really? I, I He was doing it in these workouts. It looked like he can do it. I mean, I don't know what to, to say. But, yeah, USC really underutilized a guy like that. Yeah, no, he was uh, he he was one of those guys, and that's probably I, I watched all those videos, so maybe that's part of the part of the spot where I kind of fell in love with him and saw some things that I liked. It was funny because uh, prior to last year, it's from kind of watching the videos you guys would put up and kind of keeping up with what's going on, and then you know watching SC practice and go to their games and watch warmups and stuff was was Buck Allen. 
to me was kind of like, man, this guy's got a lot of juice. He's interesting, you know, and then never got a chance. Finally gets out in the field and the rest is history. So, again, that, going back to what I said earlier, there's a reason why where there's a lot of scouts on your site looking at videos and keeping up with things because you get a guy like a Buck Allen or, or, or a Jordan Cameron, kind of these under-the-radar guys, but they've got ability, and, and this guys like you do a pretty good job of unearthing them. Oh, thank well, we we try, but we're you know we're wrong. Alan Bradford was a guy; he would run for eighty yard touchdown every every practice, and you wondered like where he was, and then you know he ended up having a big game at the end of the season. But yeah, he was he was another one of those underutilized guys that we would report on. This guy's great in practice, and then he just wouldn't play. And the interesting thing about that is uh, the Alan Bradford, because I was kind of familiar with him coming out of high school, and again a lot you know going back to to what you guys do. I ended up going up there on a stealth mission with the Eagles and putting him through a linebacker workout uh, when he was coming out. So I actually brought my brother-in-law with an iPhone, and he uh, he videoed me putting him through a linebacker workout, <laughs> uploaded uploaded it to a private YouTube channel, and then sent the information to our general manager and coaching staff in Philly. Uh, so then we started really trying to recruit him, you know, to to, to get him after the draft as a linebacker, and then. You know, he goes up to, to Seattle and ends up playing some linebacker. So it, it's kind of a, a weird story. That is pretty cool. There's so many different parallels and behind the scenes. This is great. But uh, we're, we're getting so off track with what I want to talk about. But this is this is <laughs> this is better stuff anyway. So it's good. Um, but so we talk about those guys. We'll see about uh, you know, Uko. Uh, Bailey's an interesting guy, like you said, as a tweener. But he's someone that I kind of thought would be drafted just from talent standpoint and, but end up him being dropping down and then Marcus Martin kind of caught fire and, and started moving up the charts. I don't know if that surprised you at all. Well, Marcus Martin, the thing is there's so many teams looking for big centers. Um, You know, the three, four is caught on. So we have a lot of big, heavy noses in the NFL right now. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of teams out there looking for a big, heavy center that they can keep a clean pocket for. And, so before, you know, we talked about pass protection forever. It was the importance on the tackles. Uh, and then, you know, interior guys less important. Well, the Saints kind of changed that model. They had an undersized quarterback and Drew Brees, but then they ended up, you know, with two all-pro guards and a really good center, which kept a lot of depth in the pocket for, for, for a guy like Brees. And if you have a tackle that gets beat off the edge, you can climb up into a secure pocket and still be successful. It's, it's kind of become – um, it's, it's become popular to, to you know, to, to invest inside out on the offensive line to be able to climb up in that pocket and you can survive without a premier left tackle. We look at the teams that have won the last, you know, 10 Super Bowls. There's not a lot of stud left tackles on those teams. So the interior offensive line position has taken on more value and, and in particular centers looking for guys with size. It's hard to find 315, 320-pound centers that can move around. So he, he kind of came on at the perfect time. Okay, and then uh... – what the, I want to talk about the other two guys, Marquis Lee. If if it surprised you that he dropped to the second round, and then Devon Kennard, uh, he you know he was a former five star yep. recruit as well, but picked up by the New York Giants in the fifth round. Yeah, I mean, uh, starting with Marquis Lee, I mean the, the thing about him is you love all the athleticism and the explosiveness. That the thing that got him a little bit was just really just purely the height, weight, speed. Uh, when you look at historically first round receivers. Usually they've got, you know, either plus size or plus speed, um, you know, right or wrong. It doesn't mean what they're going to be at the NFL level, but that's just kind of what first-round receivers are. And when he checked in a little bit smaller, uh, 5'11", 190-something pounds, and then he ran in the low 4.5s, that, you know, kind of spooks some people. Plus, you know, he had a lot of drops this year. 
was, you know, had the injuries, you know, so some of the quarterback stuff wasn't settled early in the year, all those factor in. Uh, but I think, you know, quite honestly, if he'd measured in at 6'1", 205 pounds, 210 pounds, he, he probably would have gone in the, in the first round when it was all said and done. But I, I do think he landed in a good spot in Jacksonville with a good uh, a young nucleus on offense they're going to try and build up together. So I think it'll all work out for him. And then with uh, Kennard? Yeah, Kennard, he's interesting because he's played all over the place. played inside linebacker. He's played with his hand down. He's played outside standing up. Um, and again, you hit on a really highly recruited guy coming out of high school. Um, had some pass ability, a little bit of stiffness there. Um, that that probably was the big knock on him. Um, but I think he's a, I think he's a very valuable player just because of all the different places you can use him. He can get you out of a game in a lot of different spots. Um, so I, I think there's some value there. I think what he go in the fifth round. Yeah, fifth uh, round to the Giants. Giants. Yeah. So yeah, I mean for where they got him and uh, and his skill set up, is probably a pretty good spot for him. And then I, we don't even go over these guys, but I just want to list them. Uh, the where the four, the uh, free agency guys: Kevin Graff, the offensive tackle, went to the Eagles. John yep. Martinez, Seahawks. Silas Red Redskins. Demetrius Wright, the safety, went to the Dolphins. And Kevin Green was a late signee by the 49ers, I think, as a tight end. Uh, but Morgan Breslin was oh, one. Did that, they bring him as a tight end? Yeah, I think I, be, I believe that's what they he, did. He's, all, he's the first guy off the bus. Yeah, he's a, he, he looks, should be. He looks great. <laughs> but. Production, we haven't but seen it. Doesn't do anything. But I mean, <laughs> I would go up there literally every year, and I would go up to the you know, the different coaches, coaching friends I had on the staff, and be like, "Dude, is, can we make this kind of player come look at this guy? We can't figure something out with him." And then, no, he's no. Can't do it. Uh, but the the I guess the more interesting one, and we'll see what happens with Silas Red and, and some of those guys. But Morgan Breslin, uh, I believe, was released yeah. by the 49ers after he got signed there. Someone that just seemed to have a lot of production and got got injured, and I don't I don't know what happened with him. Yeah, you know, there's look, there's there's always uh, you know stories that I don't, everybody gets all the information on, but I, I do know with him, um, I had heard from a couple teams there were some concerns, some learning concerns. Um, so you know, I don't know if that went into his early release or what, but I do know that was one of the knocks on that wasn't widely reported. Oh, that's interesting. And he was not, you know, USC is very open, and I don't know if as a scout this is something you like or not like, but all the players are able to be interviewed. All the time, you know, we see the recruiting stuff, but once they're at USC, we we'll do these summer workouts and all that. I mean, with, there's a lot of media out there, and they all get a chance to uh, be on camera or, or just talk to reporters. And I think it, to me, I think it helps them for later on when they go to the NFL. It's not like the first time they've talked to anybody, where some schools don't ever let players talk. Morgan Breslin was a guy that never ever spoke to the media ever, so I don't know if that was something that worked against him or not, but it didn't seem to help. Yeah, no, I, I don't know if that you know applies in this particular case, but I do think you know your your bigger point there is that there is a big advantage to playing in a place like USC because you kind of get that you know pro experience, so to speak, in in a market that big with the media presence to to put them out there and get used to that. I think it's a huge benefit, uh, especially when you're talking about the premier positions like you know the quarterback spot. Um, you know, if Matt Barkley's not successful at the NFL level, it will have nothing to do with it being you know the you know the being too big for him to, to be the face of a team or you know, all that kind of stuff. He's, he does a lot of flying colors because he's had experience with it for four years. Yeah, it's, that's kind of been my theory, but that's interesting that you would uh, agree there. But, yeah, it's, it, for me, it's just so many players, when they don't ever talk, I mean, I, I think it's a disadvantage when you have to go get interviewed a whole bunch as soon as you go to the NFL and, and all the, you know, every scout or every GM, all these people talking to you. If you're not used to that, I, I think it would be a disadvantage. 
yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's not it's not going to ever be a reason why somebody's drafted higher or lower, um, but I just think it does a, it does a nice benefit to the kid once he gets to the NFL. All right. Well, I know uh, we had a couple people on the Peristyle I posted this morning that you were going to be on that had questions. Since you're on there, do you mind answer a couple quick ones from, no, the, go for it. from the P? Uh, Southern Cal fan says, when evaluating talent, do the scouts or evaluators put more emphasis on tape, injury history, or how well the players' uh, respective team did during their season? Nothing to do with the team. Uh, team success, nothing. Uh, one of the other kind of misnomers out there is, uh, you know, the accolades in terms of, you know, guys in All-American. This guy was the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year. Like, I got, you know, last year, people had told me, you know, I was I liked Will Sutton, but I didn't think he was worse than an early-round pick, you know. And, and so he's a two-time Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year. I said, well, if you can watch, you ask any NFL scout if they'd rather have Leonard Williams from USC or Will Sutton from Arizona State, you're not going to like the answer you're going to get because it's not even close. <laughs> so we don't pay atten- we don't pay attention to the to that stuff. But the tape, to get to the question, the tape is the most important thing. Um, as long as you meet the threshold medically um, and mentally, you know, and character-wise, those are just like, just hit the marks. You just, you know, don't be a red flag um, in those areas. Then the most important thing is going to come down to the tape um, over everything else because, you know, that's the interesting thing with the draft being moved back now. I think it, you know, maybe not on purpose, but I think it is going to affect some, some teams because, the last thing in your mind is these guys running around on workouts and in shorts, and the, and the season is so far removed that sometimes you can get in trouble with your decision-making there. But I do think most people uh, would agree that tape is a, is a bigger part of the whole evaluation process. All right. Um, Craig Allen wrote in and said, you want to get your take on the cornerback versus offensive decisions that some of these uh, kind of slider players like DeAnthony Thomas and Adoree Jackson kind of have to make. Are these kids fools uh, to try to be playing offense? Well, I, I would just put it out there. I mean, I, uh, I've seen Adoree Jackson's, you know, little high school tape and, and all that. It's, he's an explosive athlete. I get wanting to get the ball in his hands any way you can. But, uh, you know, if, I, if it was if it was my son, I would say go play corner, man. Because every year in the draft, just having been in that draft room, we end up having, you know, our, our wall on, on the draft wall. We have so many receivers. We, we have, you know, we're just – we have to, to weed it out. So we're just constantly going, okay, move him to the sideboard, move him to the sideboard, free agent, free agent, free agent. We just have too many names up here. And then we get to the corner position, and it's like, man, we don't have any – does any of these guys convert? Can we do that? Well, we need more corners. So to me, if I had a young athlete and it was my son and he had a chance to play on either side of the ball, I would try and direct to, to corner. That makes sense. I, when I saw DeAnthony Thomas in, in high school, and especially at the All American game under the Army All American, should have been game. a nickel. He, he should be. A, he should have been a nickel corner in, yeah. the, in the NFL. That's what he should be. But he, he looked great doing that. And uh, I don't know. The, you know, I think if he came to SC, he was definitely going to play defense. But he went to Oregon. It's, you know, great great career in college. But we'll have to see uh, at the yeah, next level. Yeah, what's the bigger goal? Yeah. <laughs> uh, SC made last one from the Peristyle. SC made. Uh, wants to know what does Leonard Williams and Nelson Aguilar have to do this year to make sure they're first round picks? And he said maybe Leonard Williams in the top five, and maybe you could include Buck Allen in that too, since you mentioned him. Yeah, I mean the tricky thing we're trying to network is we're affiliated with the league, so I get in trouble if I try and put round grades on any of the underclassmen. Oh, okay. um, but I mean I can I can tell you I think Leonard Williams is the most dominant defensive player that I that I watch uh, for for that still has college eligibility remaining. You can do what you want with that. Uh, and then uh, Nelson Aguilar, I mean, very, very explosive. 
just just getting more refinement, working underneath uh, on some of the underneath stuff, getting in and out of his brakes. Uh, but he is an he is an exciting player who can get vertical. He's great after the catch. So just cleaning up some of the finer points as a route runner, something he can work on. And then Buck Allen getting a chance he can prove that he can carry the load for a whole season. You know, which the interesting thing is going to be. Uh, how much of a load is Sark going to give him? Because he loaded up Bishop Sankey, but I don't think at Washington he had the stable that he has here now because the young kid, uh, 22, is Justin Davis. He's, yeah. He's, he's, he's a good player, man. When you watch him on tape, uh, he's interesting, and you, and you still have Trade Madden. Um, so they're going to have some options there. Uh, so it means to see how much of a load they give him. But I think, you know, from an evaluation standpoint, you like to see him carry a little bit of a big load uh, to see what he can do with it. Sweet. All right, and then uh, just one last thing for you, and I you know, appreciate you coming on. Was there anyone, and you did all those mock drafts, and it was funny to kind of see you going through the iterations and all that. Was there, like, your biggest hit or biggest miss of the mock draft, like the craziest thing that you think that you predicted that either came true or didn't come true? Yeah, well, I mean, I I had Marcus Smith from Louisville going in the late first round, which I don't know if too many people had, had that one out there, and no, I didn't get the team right, but I had him in, in the bottom of the first round because I'd, Talked to a lot of people that he was kind of gaining some steam, and so I threw that one out there. One of my my biggest mistake was thinking Blake Bortles going to third overall pick. Um, <laughs> I, I'm good friends with their general manager David Caldwell. We've known each other for a long time. I talked to him the day before uh, the draft, and we went over some players. And uh, I started asking, "Hey, okay, hey, I did this with him the year before, and he was great to me." And I just said, "Hey, I'm going to go over about five players. I think you could pick, and just tell me why they all fit." with what you do. And so I started going over the players, went over Khalil Mack, Sammy Watkins, Mike Evans. I said, all right, let's start talking about the quarterbacks. So I went over Johnny Manziel. Uh, then right when we finished Johnny Manziel, he told me he had another call and he would have to call me back. <laughs> so hangs up, never called me back. And then, of course, I never got a chance to ask him about Blake Bortles. They take Blake Bortles. So I call him the day after. They call him the next day, the day before day two of the draft. I go, dude. You didn't have anybody on the other line, did you? He's like, nah, nah I didn't, didn't want to lie to you, man. I didn't want to lie to you. But then I, so I told the story, and somebody brought up, well, he did lie to you. He lied to you and said he had someone on the other line. So he gets no moral high ground uh, for that whole deal. But he's, I didn't get that one. That's kind of that's kind of a white lie. But, yeah, I guess it's uh, – he just wanted to avoid having to not tell you the truth about a guy. Yes. Which is kind of, yeah, there you go. But I think I, – I don't know if you tweeted it out, but there, I, I think you did, but we're like how many times you were lied to by general managers. Oh, over the, gosh. It's crazy. Like, <laughs> No, yeah, that, that's the funny thing. When they, call, when they call you and they offer information without you asking, I don't even – I might put my pen down. I stop writing. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> that's funny. Is there, So that the misinformation out there is, like, legit. Like, there are teams oh, out yeah. there. Okay. And there's, and then, you know, look, I have, I have probably a core group of guys that I've known for a long time that are good to me. That, uh, you know, six, seven, eight guys that are that are very straight up. And then, and a lot of guys, other guys I talk to and I'm friendly with, but I wouldn't really trust the information they give me. And one of the funny things is when you have uh, people in front offices, like the new GM takes takes uh, a job. So then you end up talking to some people and they're like, oh, you know, or inside the organization, oh, this guy, you know, our GM, he loves this guy or the other. And I literally go, that's funny because I called the team he used to work for and had him read me his report and it sounds nothing like what you're describing. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, there's ways you can back, you know, and kind of, kind of do your homework and find out what you're getting good or not. Nice. All right. Well, you've been more than generous with your time. He's Daniel Jeremiah at Move the Sticks on Twitter, NFL. You can see him on the NFL Network. He's taking a little time off, much needed time off after that uh long draft process that was 
into May this time instead of April. So, but really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Ryan. Keep up the good work, man. All right. Thank you. You too. And uh, that's Daniel Jeremiah. We'll be back in uh, 30 seconds talking with uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. You are listening to the Peristyle Podcast from Los Angeles, California. Hey, USC Trojan fans, to get into the huddle of your Southern Cal Trojans, log on to uscfootball.com today for all the latest in Trojan football, basketball, and recruiting news. Ryan Abraham will give you an in-depth analysis, recruiting updates, and will answer your questions every day on the message board. So for all the latest in team and recruiting news on your USC Trojans, check out uscfootball.com, the officially licensed Southern Cal site of the Rivals.com network. It's time to get back to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. We're back here, final segment of the Peristyle Podcast for this week, first one of June. we got summer workouts going on. Uh, first time we got to see them last week. If you check out uscfootball.com, you saw Dan Weber and myself talking on Instant Analysis. We put up photos, put up video. Uh, Dan wrote a column. So lots of stuff going on with summer workouts. They'll be back at it again this week. So definitely check out the site for that. And wanted to welcome on Daniel Weber, talking some USC football. What's up, Dan? How you doing? Pretty good. We're going. We got it going anyway. It started. Can't ask for any more than that right now. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it was uh, it was interesting. It's it's a little different. So if people don't know, uh, there is a, I guess, let me put it nicely, an arbitrary rule that we are now not allowed to interview players during the month of June but we can during the month of July. So our reporting from the workouts is a little different. We can still show you the you know, video stuff and photos and all that, and we'll give you our analysis. But no player interviews yet, Dan. Yeah, and, and, and where that uh, falls a, a little bit apart for people is, and not just us, but if, for example, as we saw the other night, uh, the other day, that Max Brown doesn't really take part. He threw a couple of passes. He mostly was a signaler on the sidelines and all that. You can just say, hey, what do you, you got the flu or something or whatever? And he say, oh, yeah, as he's leaving or, you know, whatever. And then you've got an answer. Or you see somebody who's really uh, leaned down or bulked up, and you can say to, you know, Zach Banner, oh, you're down to what, 340 or whatever now? Or you're, you know, somebody else, you're, wow, you're looking, uh, you know, oh, yeah, I put on 10. Those kinds of things would really help a little bit. Uh, they don't want us to do that. Now, I, I mean, I think the thought was they didn't want kids to have to do the stand-up interviews maybe and, you know, miss, uh, you know, leaving with, with their buddies and all that kind of thing. And I can understand that. But uh, but uh, it, it does leave some holes. So, you know, there might be times when we just said, you know, well, Max Brown was on the sidelines for this uh practice uh we're not we we might not have any answers for you um so you just have to uh let it happen when it happens and let it develop the way it goes and and that's just the way it is right now uh but all right but just definitely check out the site like we said there'll be a couple workouts a week and we'll we'll be all down there with videos and and photography and we'll let you know how they look and uh speaking of uh dan we had a question for melvin and maybe this kind of ties in because we get to see some players that maybe weren't participating in the spring or coming back from injuries, but here's Melvin's question. He says, uh, looking at the depth chart, I noticed that some names were left out. For example, DJ Morgan, Stephen Mitchell, 
and Don Hill. Is that because they were injured during spring practice and did not participate? And do you anticipate they'll be ready to come back on the depth chart in the fall and they'll be ready for the upcoming season? That's uh, Melvin. Yeah, Melvin, uh, uh, I think basically we decided on that depth chart to be a, a post-spring depth chart kind of going along with the USC depth chart where they mostly didn't want to um, um, start guessing on, on guys coming back. I mean, I would you know, put D.J. Morgan on the depth chart now, uh, having seen him the other night. Uh, so, uh, you know, so that'll probably happen after we see, you know, after we see a couple of weeks anyway of, of how, you know, guys are coming back. Yeah, uh, uh, I think uh, first chance, it was the first time we've seen uh, uh, Hill run, First time we've seen uh, Jordan Simmons run, people like that. Um, we get a sense of, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll get a sense of, of where they're going to fit in on the depth chart. And with the Jordan Simmons, where he is now, which is basically, you know, backing up uh, uh, to Leo Rogers, is uh, not necessarily where he's going to be, you know, in two months. Uh, but, uh, you know, you don't know which way those kind of, you know, comebacks are going to go. So, um, um, but, yeah, I think it was mostly a post-spring, the guys who played in spring, the guys we don't know about, we're not going to insert them until we see them, uh, you know, return. And so, we, you know, we got to see a DJ Morgan out there uh, last week. We got to see Stephen Mitchell actually make some, some good cuts, and you can kind of see uh, – I think both those guys, we have them on video, but we'd l- at least have photos of them. So, uh, yeah, now, like, if we had to redo the depth chart now, I think those guys would be eligible just because they've been, they've been out there and participating. Yeah, and, and, and both of them, you know, have situations where you don't want to, you know, uh, DJ, for example, has come back a couple of times uh, and then had more uh, issues with his surgically repaired, you know, knee and then uh, – ended up having to take off the the rest of, of last fall. But uh certainly think that they've figured it out and that they've gotten it all, all taken care of. But those things you'll see play out after a couple of weeks of some hard running, then you see where uh, where does that put him? Uh, what shape is that knee in? Same with with Steven. Uh, I think he started really slow the other night and wasn't in all the drills and wasn't, you know, running all the stuff. And eventually he jumps in and then eventually we see him do a couple of moves that are like, whoa. I mean, that was the, you know, we we saw him collapse last year on a on an unbelievable move, um, and uh, in August, I guess was it August, July, I guess July, and uh, in the summer workouts before they got got back, and uh, uh, so you want to see how they're how they're going to hold up and how you know how they feel that they're holding up, but uh, but he did a couple of things that make you think, okay. He could be in the mix, uh, in the mix, and uh, he really adds a weapon. Uh, and so does DJ. DJ still got a burst that uh, that's special. I mean, this kid was a world class, uh, you know, hurdler in high school. Uh, and world class, we mean, you know, best in the world. And so uh, to just get kids with those kinds of skills, I don't know that we've seen anybody who has the feet and the moves that uh, uh, you know Stephen has. So. That uh, those are pluses. If, if those uh, come through this summer and hold up, those guys, uh, that's a big. Those are a couple of big pluses. Certainly is, and uh, we'll we'll keep checking back with them. So we'll we'll uh, 
post the progress on uscfootball.com of what we see, especially the guys coming back from injury, what they've looked like. But it was really an impressive workout and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, some more of those. And you were talking about depth chart. I wanted to talk about the uh, our scholarship distribution chart, which if you want to check it out on uscfootball.com, it's on the very front page. Uh, there's little insets under the, the main headline there. You can see scholarship distribution chart, or you can go across the top to more, and there's, it's listed over there. It does need to be uh, updated. I, I haven't updated it for like a month or so. Uh, so Ty Isaac is still on there. I'll make sure I change that and, and get him taken off there. He's obviously not with the program anymore. And there's a couple of walk-ons that were given scholarships, so they are actually added to the chart. Um, so we kind of update the numbers and stuff there. But with the the next uh, caller, we have a question uh, on the uh, scholarship distribution chart. So I just want to let people know where you could find that. Check it out, and then Dan and I can talk about it after the question. But here's a question for you, Dan. Hey, it's Robin Yakaya. I want to call in and ask about the uh, scholarship distribution chart. I'm looking at the one that that, that Ryan does, and looks like want to talk about if we can if we're going to be able to get to 85 next year. Um, you know, it looks like we've got 11 seniors we're going to be missing. Uh, we got 22 juniors for in the year after, but I'm sure there's going to be at least three or four that are probably going to be leaving early. So you figure we're going to lose about 15 players next year. We're only going to be able to bring 25 on, so you know, have a net gain of maybe 10, and that's if people don't transfer out of the program or become academically ineligible. We've got 69, by my figures, we've got 69 on scholarship right now. So it looks like we're going to be maybe four or five short um, come this time next year. Can you guys talk about that a little bit? Thanks a lot. Right on. Bye. Yeah, I think those numbers are, are right, and uh, I think those are numbers that uh, uh, I know USC has gone back to the NCAA uh, a couple of times last year, one quietly, one where Pat practically got thrown out of the offices in Indianapolis, it looked like. Uh, and uh, I would have pushed that. That would have been the one thing that, that I, I think I would have pushed as hard as anything I could have pushed if I were USC. And, uh, you know, Penn State certainly got their scholarships back in a, you know, in a heartbeat. And uh, they'll have more scholarship players than USC next year. Uh, and it's ridiculous. And, uh Yes, he should have made the case that and made the NCAA. They really, I think they should have requested a public hearing. You are allowed to do that, uh, and very loudly requested a public hearing before the Committee on Infractions for an interpretation on the scholarship uh, distribution and the and the fact that uh, you said you know no more than 75. We won't have more than 75, but to throw in the initial 15 scholarships per year, knowing that players. You know, by all standards, we're going to leave early for the NFL. Uh, we're going to get, you know, uh, maybe not so injured that they, you know, you would uh, put them on, uh, you know, wave them off the program and keep them on scholarship and that. And USC hasn't done that with anybody uh, because I think they've, you know, been afraid that the NCAA would come down on them. Uh, but for the NCAA to now, you know, act like they didn't realize USC would end up in the 60s for scholarships, they knew, they meant it, and I would force them to at least come out publicly and say, we don't care. That's tough. You know, yeah, we, we wanted you to go. We said 75, but we really meant we wanted you to get down into the 60s and maybe hope into the 50s because we wanted to really hurt you as, bad, as badly as you could. And, yes, he should have, I think, pushed that hard. And I would have maybe uh, 
you know, parlayed the whole demand to see the emails in that uh, in that request and say, look, you know, we're, you know, I would have used every tool I could have to guarantee that at the least USC always had 75 originally recruited scholarship players, and uh, uh, that would have been. Uh, that would have been if there was one place to go after them, and if you even said go after them legally, that would have been the place because the NCAA doesn't have a leg to stand on. Uh, they would have been vulnerable to charges of risking players' health. The USC is a program that doesn't schedule down in terms of the only program uh, with UCLA and Notre Dame that has never played uh, a lower you know, classification uh, you know, team, and they're not going to. And... USC needs at least, you know, 75 is probably way too few and should have never been allowed in a, you know, collision contact sport like football. But, uh, but yeah, they're going to be, um, you know, more than a – so and what that does is the NCAA, it allows the NCAA to extend the penalty. These were supposed to be three years' worth of sanctions. Well, if sanctions are over, USC won't be the 85 scholarships next year. Again, I'd still challenge them. I would say uh, I would go, you know, publicly to the NCAA, you know, the Committee on Infractions, and say we want an interpretation. We got three years of penalty that said 75 scholarship limit. Uh, that's it. We want it over. And once with, once we're finished with the three years of 75, we want to be able to go back to 85. And as long as the players who left were academically eligible and athletically eligible. We want the ability to replace them. And I think that was a, a really a missed opportunity by USC, and I, I think they still have an opportunity to go after that. And maybe, maybe that's the point after this year, to make the point. We want to be back to 85. You said three years of 75. We've served our three years of 75. It's basically like you know, adding time instead of reducing somebody's time for good behavior, USC is getting added time uh, for good behavior. I mean, it's ridiculous. And the way the NCAA has treated every other lawbreaker uh, with such kid gloves, and then they still keep treating USC the way they're doing, I mean, there's no credibility to the NCAA at this point. And uh, I think USC ought to use that and and say, we're planning to be at 85 uh, next year, whatever it takes. I'd push it really hard. Yeah, we'll see if uh, USC ends up doing anything like that. But it's, as of right now, I, I do believe the math is correct. I, I Like I said, I need to update the uh, scholarship distribution chart. But just looking at it now, um, Ty Isaac will come off. Um, I think we need to add Nathan Gertler uh, to because he was given a scholarship. Who else was, Dan? Was it uh, Ryan Dillard? Ryan Dillard and wide receiver, wide receiver. Uh, oh, Col- Robbie Cullen. Robbie Cullen. Cullen, okay. So, so we've got three more, and um, so we dropped down to, what, 68 uh, originally recruited guys or, or whatever, and then 70, and that, does that take them to 71 or 72? Um, so we, there are still a couple of scholarships available. Uh, yeah, again, so there's – whether. The, how wide, you know, how wild a guess is it, or you know, a chance that, you know, we might get a couple of guys who originally were on scholarship, and then left the program, and then maybe come back. Maybe it's just a, a you know, one in a hundred chance, but uh, 
but maybe you save a couple of scholarships for guys who got separated and maybe maybe would be allowed to come back. Yeah, so it looks like – so the chart I have listed now, and I'll fix it, it has 70 players on scholarship. We're going to take one away. We'll add three. Um, so it'll be up to 72. But, you know, a few of those players, like you said, were not originally uh, recruited athletes, uh, scholarship guys. So, um, you know, and they'll be, you know, likely coming off the books. But it's – yeah, if, uh, if you look at the, the number of seniors there, uh, there's four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine, there's 11. So those guys are gone, um, and you you can replace you know twenty five new ones can come in, uh, but likely to get back up to eighty five once once USC um, I think it was seventy four was the magic number. So once it became you know once USC was under seventy four scholarships, there was no physical way to get back up because you know you're losing eleven, um, you're not going to be able to twenty five would never get you back up to to eighty five and and like the caller said. There's likely some juniors that are going to go. Um, I mean, right off the top, you look at Leonard Williams, yeah. Buck Allen, Trey Madden, to, you know, for starters, uh, you know, and then to go from there. I mean, uh, who knows with, uh, you know, Antoine Woods, Max, uh, Max Turk. I mean, a lot of these guys could have good years. Uh, Nelson Aguilar. I mean, could be a lot more than three or four. Yeah. I mean that would be the downside of having a having a great year, but uh, you have a great year, it probably ought to allow you to have a great recruiting year too. I mean I think clearly the most important thing for next year's recruiting is how does the team, uh, what kind of a year do they have in the fall? You know what kind of a, you know how do they do at Stanford? You know right away and into what's the tone that you set for the whole season and then you build to you know UCLA Notre Dame and uh, who knows how that all goes but uh, I think it's going to you know matter a lot that uh, the we think the team this year is young next year might be, be really young. <laughs> unbelievably young I mean uh, so but uh, I mean that's what that's the uh, that's the fun of it and the challenge of it and seeing the new guys come in and uh, and step in for the uh, you know the older guys. I mean, it's hard to believe, honestly, that uh, Leonard Williams and and uh, Nelson Aguilar, you know, juniors who could be moving on. That just doesn't seem like they've been here that long. No, it's completely correct. And uh, I, I misspoke earlier, Dan. It wasn't seventy four was the magic number. It was seventy one. So if okay. you okay. if you subtract the eleven seniors from seventy one. You get to 60, you add 25 to that, and you get to 85. So, uh, you know, USC is now down to 68 uh, recruited scholarship guys. So there's at least going to be three under that. Um, you know, they can add some more walk-ons and things. They're, they're at 72 now. But as far as recruited uh, athletes go, they're at least three under that. And like you said, every single junior that leaves, that's a junior you're never going to be able to replace. So, yeah, unreplaceable yeah. In, in so many ways. And, again, that that's the uh, – the part of the uh, NCAA, uh, you know, ban, uh, you know, scholarship sanction that I think they should, and I and, and they have challenged it. I just think I'd challenge it uh, as publicly as possible. And maybe uh, if you don't get the right answer, and if they just laugh at you, throw you out the door, and say, "No, we're treating you differently," all those other schools, we like them. We don't like you. 
so we're going to come down hard on you. We're going to, you know, you just to prove how tough we are, you know, and, and a lot of that is just to uh, not be embarrassed that they have to go. I mean, if they have to go back on the USC case, I mean, they're already embarrassed by, uh, by everything else they've done. I think the only good thing that's come out of this is three years ago, it was a resume enhancer. If you were a law professor, or a lawyer, or whatever, it was a resume enhancer to tell people, uh, so-and-so, Josephine Petuto is a member, a longtime member of the Committee on Infractions, or Missy Conboy, a longtime member of the committee. It's not a resume enhancer now. No. It doesn't do you much good to tell people. Most of those people on the Committee on Infractions don't want people to know they're on the Committee on Infractions, or they were on the Committee on Infractions. That's the only good thing that's come out of this, is those people know what they did, they know they've been caught. They know, you know, how unethical their behavior, you know, was. They know that they screwed up. And mostly, you don't hear people bragging about being on the committee on, on, on infractions anymore, and rightly so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great points, Dan. Um, all right, well, well, we'll leave it at that. So check out the chart. I'll make sure I update that so you can kind of see where uh, USC stands scholarship-wise. But it's a, it's a good read there. And then uh, one last thing, Dan, we had, let's see, this is uh, Frank in Orlando, Florida. So this is kind of an interesting one. We'll end the podcast for this week on that. Being a USC fan in SEC country, it just drives me crazy. I'm sick of how the SEC has gamed the system, and yet no one calls them out on it. From over-recruiting, taking away scholarships to make rooms for new players, Cam Newton and Johnny Football getting away with things that no USC player could ever get away with. And 2003, LSU somehow got to the BCS title game and pushed USC out when the Trojans were ranked number one in both polls. ESPN seems to be in bed with the SEC as they prop up every SEC team and rank them high in the top 20 and ensure that they have the best teams. And the schedule said so the best teams in the conference avoid having to play each other. Good teams like Alabama did this last year, only playing eight games in conference. And the non-conference schedule is a joke. Florida is... Uh, Florida has not played a non-conference game outside of the state of Florida since 1991. I'm sick of the SEC. Please tell me why they get away with it. Fight on, Frank, in Orlando, Florida. Well, they were the smartest. They set it up. Roy Kramer, uh, Vanderbilt coach and commissioner of the SEC, they knew what they were doing. Um, And, you know, they gradually uh, figured it out. And uh, they figured out in the, the last piece of the puzzle where they had to get rid of USC. Because they figured out we could get a team to the championship game every year. And then they realized, but what happens if we're Oklahoma and that USC team shows up? They don't want to be that. So then, basically, uh, it was a word-of-mouth campaign, uh, essentially, to uh, take USC out. And uh, they did. They you know, successfully did that. And they gamed the system perfectly. I mean, in 2008, and USC cooperated a little bit. And the Pac-12 cooperated with the nine-game schedule, and USC lost the you know 2008 championship in Corvallis, Oregon, for God's sakes. I mean that USC team probably would have beaten. They could have played the two, you know, Florida and Oklahoma teams that actually got to the championship game that year. USC probably could have played them in the same week and beaten both of them. I mean, uh, it was just uh, that's just what happened, um, and you know. Uh, but you got to give got to give them credit. It, they, it matters so much, and and they aren't going to get uh, held to any kind of a standard. You know, Cam Newton and uh, that nose tackle they had that year, both junior college guys. God would like to see their transcripts. You would uh, at Auburn, 
and, and the SEC uh, looked the other way, and uh, you know, NCAA looked the other way, and the BCS looked the other way, and uh, that's just the way it works. However, I think you can feel good if you're an Orlando guy. First of all, and you're a USC guy, you look at USC and you say, "Hmm, Florida, SEC country, Big Leonard Williams, uh, you know, Nelson Aguilar, uh, you know, Claude Pilon, Leon McQuay, Quentin Powell, Buck Allen." How about you think Florida, Florida State would like to have those six guys? Um, so this might be the year where if you're a Florida USC guy, you might feel pretty good about, you know, the ones that uh, that made it to L.A. Uh, I do also think that they can't quite game the system, and I give them credit. I mean, they did whatever they had to do to help themselves, and they, they helped themselves as a conference far better than the Pac-12 would. I mean, the Pac-12 gloried. Uh, the other 11 gloried in USC's downfall, uh, even though it you know, would hurt the conference because they thought it would help them. That isn't the way they play ball in the Southeastern Conference, and it shows. They, you know, they hated the idea of Auburn doing what it did to win that national championship, but they you know, sucked it up and said, this is good for the SEC, and we'll have to take it, and they did. Uh, had they wanted Auburn to go down, the Auburn would have gone down, but they, they didn't want Auburn to go down. So, uh, but I think in the 14 playoffs, I think it's going to be a lot harder for the SEC to game them. Obviously, they're already working on trying to see how they can make it so that the second team from the SEC gets in. I think they're screwed a little bit with the schedule, and I think the committee, the 13-person committee, is going to have to come down on the side of, stronger schedules and against the eight-team conference schedule when you've got 14 teams in the conference and you miss so many in your own conference, plus you're scheduling four patsies at home every year and you don't travel. So uh, so I think it's going to hurt them, and I think it's going to hurt them that they don't see enough uh, up-tempo, uh, really athletic quarterbacks that they have to defend. They haven't done that well recently. Alabama you know, didn't do that well against Johnny Manziel. They didn't do that well against Auburn's kind of up-tempo uh, attack of Gus Malzahn. So I think in the playoffs, even if they get two SEC teams, I think they're going to be in a little bit of a trouble. I don't think they're going to have as much success as uh, as we've seen them in the past when they get, you know, one game and they hope it's, a, uh, you know, an Oklahoma team that's not very good. Uh, I think the, this situation is going to be a, a little more difficult for them. So, uh so don't give up uh, hope. I, I don't think. I think you know. The, I think the SEC has taught people a lot of things, and uh, they've uh, you know certainly improved the you know the um, uh, helped improve the um, uh, the revenues for college football. I mean, uh, everybody benefits, I guess. Uh, you know, with the uh, you know with the way the TV contracts are going. I mean, the SEC you know SEC is going to probably you know go big time with their next deal, but uh, but the Pac-12 certainly benefited with their last deal, whether that holds up uh, against where, where the uh, SEC is going, I don't know. But, uh, but I, I give the SEC credit. They competed. They saw where they could compete. I don't give them credit, as you say, if, you know, running kids off, over-recruiting, doing things like that. I, I, that's not a, that, they, they shouldn't be doing that and bringing some of the kids in that they, they bring in. And, you know, the, you know getting – now pictures of kids with their new cars, you know, blatantly just saying, look at my new car. Here, you know, and, 
I'm not sure. You know, we're hearing stories that that the SEC has realized that if you have an NCA now where there hasn't been a single hearing on the Committee on Infractions or a, a major, you know, uh, violations case in eight months, the longest period in years and years, uh, I think the people in the SEC realize, okay, it's a kind of a much more laissez-faire world about college athletics. It's kind of, you know, just go ahead and fend for yourself, and they're pretty good at that. Um so it's going to be interesting to see how this all goes together. But I think in terms of, of playing the game, as many talented players as they have, especially, you know, defensive guys and big linebackers that can move and, you know, cornerbacks that can run and all that, I think the, the diversity of uh, of what you see, for example, in the Pac-12 and the kinds of quarterbacks you have to play against and and where you you could be when you, you emerge from that uh I think it might stand the Pac-12 in, in, in pretty good stead uh, coming up here. So, so we'll see. Maybe you'll get your uh, your revenge on the SEC uh, folks down there in Orlando. And we do have a few USC guys down in Orlando. So uh, maybe uh, for all of you guys, uh, this might be a good year. Oh, no, I think we might have misspoke. It, I think George Katrib was the one that got the scholarship, not Robbie. Oh, George did. I'm sorry. Not Rob, no, Robbie. Yes, you're right. Sorry about Robbie. that. So apologize to Robbie. Robbie is our uh, is our uh, um, SID office uh, uh, survivor. Yeah, former intern. Uh, uh, former intern in the SID. So Robbie, always, uh, and to be honest, a lot of those wide receiver kids who work so hard and really play well uh, are probably in line uh, for that for that scholarship because those kids just have done such a great job. I'm glad you. Yes, it's George. George. Yes. Yeah. So apologize to that and to the <laughs> to everyone. We just want to get those uh, names right and stuff. I just want to make sure. But I, I will get that scholarship chart updated so everyone can see everyone who's on scholarship right now. We'll put little marks there for the former walk-on so you can see who was a recruited athlete versus a former walk-on that was given a scholarship. So we'll put all that in there. And Dan, great stuff. We really appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts. And uh, thanks for coming on the show again. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Ryan. See you See you at the workout. All right. Sounds good. And everyone else, thank you very much for tuning into the Peristyle Podcast. Thank to Daniel Jeremiah, Coach Harvey Hyde, Dan Weber, for Ryan Abraham signing off. Check out our uscfootball.com and Peristyle Podcast for more. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.